Your purpose on the show today is to enlighten your audience. Sameness trumps diversity. Now, there are times when diversity provides extraordinary privilege and opportunities, but there are times when there's a downside and exposure to risk and so forth. Everything that they've been taught that's bad is actually the brain trying to preserve itself. And when I first met Oprah, I was wearing this necklace. And Oprah was like, where did you get it? I love it. How would I get one? I was like, you can't, Oprah, sorry. Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put the kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech kundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Alexa, tell us a joke. Which tree should be president of the forest? The one that wins the popular vote. Okay, Alexa, I know that you have been training all week long and that you have something special to do for us today. Alexa, can you sing me a country song? Who, me? I couldn't. I hit it. When my wife I left me And I'm out in the rain Those last few answers Were hard to obtain But that's no excuse To put me on mute Like a good cowgirl All up and reboot It's raining in the clouds And I ain't proud I'll answer in the morning Answer in the evening When you're around I'll answer in the morning Answer in the evening When you're around (laughs) Well done, Alexa! You do me proud! We have a very special guest with us today. Timothy Maurice Webster is sitting in front of me, and I'm absolutely privileged to have him here, but also to have the privilege to call him a friend. He is here to talk to us today about evolving um, yourself, building your own personal brand, and the role of neuroscience and that what it plays in that. So let me just tell you a little bit about Timothy. Timothy Maurice Webster is an author of four best-selling books on human and brand behavior. 
He travels all across the globe, speaking at so many events, but also really making an impact in, in brands and companies' lives, but also in a lot of individuals' lives. He's got his own podcast. The, the list goes on and on and on. So I think I'm going to let it over to you, or I could ask Alexa to do it. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I love your co-host as well. Oh, my <laughs> co-host. She's learning, hey, but she needs a little bit of training. She, she can be very embarrassing at times. The first thing that really, really fascinated me is the moment when I saw you drive in with your scooter in <laughs> Josie. I was like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely incredible. And then I remembered a story about you thinking that your motorbike or your scooter got stolen. Do you oh, remember yeah, that? Yeah, Tell yeah. us that story. So I have a, I have a bike uh, in Joburg and one in Cape Town. And my, my bike in Cape Town... I I was tired, you know. I, I work like <laughs> I work. I overwork myself sometimes. So I arrived back at the hotel, come from a client, and I was like, I need to take a nap before the event in the evening. So I park. I wake up, and I'm like a little bit disoriented. I get up and I go to the park and I look for my bike, and it's not there. And I completely freak out. I go to security. <laughs> security is up in this passage. I feel like I'm going through like this James Bond vibe. They're taking me through secret doors, and we get to we get to the security. And this lady just looks at me like, "Dude, what do you want? I'm sleeping." Like she literally has this look like, "I'm sleeping. What do you want?" And I'm like, "But you're security. How can you be sleeping?" So she so she wakes up and she helps me and we go on to the camera and then we rewind it back and we actually see me we see me going in and then all of a sudden um she's like um there's the bike I'm like what and she's like I'm like that must be him <laughs> That's the guy who stole it. Get a zoom in. And she zoomed in. It was me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I basically, you know, parked in the wrong place and then threw the whole thing <laughs> off. But, you know, my bike, I, I believe that my bikes helped me with 30% more productivity. Yeah. I have mapped it. For example, this morning, I had a talk that I wouldn't have taken the talk and this appointment if I only had my car. I literally left my car at home on purpose this morning because I knew. So I even have a rain suit because I thought if it does wow. rain, I'll be able to make this appointment as well as my other appointment. So I really love my bikes a lot. That's I know it's dangerous and it's crazy and whatever. If I had kids, I don't know if I would drive them. I, you know, I don't have kids. You just so. look like such a hipster. Just so <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> oh, okay, so let's start from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about Timothy Maurice Webster as a boy. So as a kid, I grew up on a farm. I'm a farm kid, North Carolina. North Carolina is a very interesting place because it's straddled in between the furthest part of the South and the North in, in America and the East Coast. And I grew up, we had a lake on the farm of horses, tobacco. My grandfather had about a hundred oh. acres of land and we, you know, so we kind of lived off the land, very humble type of thing. My, it was four homes on that land. My grandparents, my uncle, my aunt, and then us. Literally, you know, we could look out of our window and see. So I had my cousin who was very close. I had my sister. And we were like, the three of us were like siblings. Well, my sister obviously is a real sibling. What was interesting about that upbringing was we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of resources. And then everything changed when I was 13 years old. You know, so we lived very normal life like you know we didn't have to go we we call it going to town because when you live on a farm 
you know, you get everything from the farm. Yeah. So we didn't really have to go to town much. Um, but when we did, it was a big deal. It was like going to another planet, right? At 13, my parents worked in factories. I don't know if you follow the American politics much. I Trump do. goes on and on about <laughs> China. China is taking all the jobs. You're China. So, <laughs> you're doing it so perfectly. Oh, gosh, guys, if you were here, you would be hosing yourself. Just do that again. You know, China. China. You know, that's his whole thing, right? But it's a real thing. Both my parents lost their jobs when I was 13 because they were working in factory. My dad was working sort of HR. My mom was working on the line. And they were doing sort of the cotton that Gap, the brand mm-hmm. Gap used. But they all went to China. And everything changed. So we sort of struggled big time. And what fundamentally changed my life and sort of set me on this path that I'm on now Mm. is what happened when I was 13, which is basically I had a crush on a captain of the cheerleaders named Deborah Dalton. She was like, you're kind of beautiful. You know, beautiful eyes, beautiful hair. You're kind of beautiful. You know you're kind of beautiful. She was just, I knew she was out of my league because her parents you know, worked like serious jobs and she did really well. They lived on a golf course. Now imagine they got the farm kid and a golf course girl. You know, the contrast. It's like like yin and yang. Yeah, like (laughs) completely. And, and she was the captain of the cheerleaders. You know, the American school system, the captain of the cheerleaders is a big deal. You get the quarterback and the captain of the cheerleaders. The two of them run the school. (laughs) You measure yourself against them on every level. Yeah. So she wouldn't even look at me. And and when we started struggling, I went to my mom one day and I said, look, I need new underwear. I've run out of underwear. Like, they all have holes in them or whatever. And she's like, well, you need to make a plan. Our John Deere tractor is down, <gasps> the green one. And that was the main oh tractor. Oh, my gosh. So we had, a, we had a, like a rustic, burgundy-looking one and a green one. Uh. And the green, when the green one went down, things really got tough on the farm. So she's like, sort yourself out with your underwear. I'm like, all right. So I went and made a, <laughs> I made myself some homemade underwear. I took an old Batman t-shirt. I cut the t-shirt up. Wow. I put the Batman on the, Batman logo on the back. And I went <laughs> to school with homemade underwear. And I was terrified that if the school found out I was wearing homemade underwear, I was in serious trouble. Because at that stage, because I played sports, I feel like I still had a chance with Deborah mm. because I was good. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, I played baseball, basketball, and football. Sure. I was very athletic in school. And if I would excel athletically, I still had a chance. But I knew that if I, people found out I had on homemade underwear, it was done. So the first day I wore them to school, I was in um, PE class and I took off my pants and put on my shorts really fast so no one would see me. Yeah. But then I was too slow. Stephen oh. Searcy and Chad Smith <gasps> saw them. They brought everybody in the class oh. over, and then everything erupted. This moment fundamentally changed my life. Sure. A couple of the kids were like, whoa, those are the coolest underwear we've ever seen. Where did you get them? And I was like, I made them. And that day, I took an order for 50 pair of underwear. And that day, I became the interesting, thinking, curious designer kid. Next week, Deborah found out. she was. I went to school. She was standing at my locker waiting for me. And I was like, if I knew Afrikaans then, I would have been like, Patek. <laughs> I was about to ask you, so what does Deborah think about yeah, you now? <laughs> exactly. It's funny, but now she's like, I don't know what happened. It's bad. But <laughs> Oh my gosh. I feel sorry for but her. You, but you see how those those moments can ruin your, your well not ruin, but those are um paradigm shifts in your in your personal life. 
is especially what happens to you when you're at a very young and vulnerable age. Yeah, so I started writing and my teachers said, my English teachers said that your writing became colorful and beautiful after that. It was that moment that produced my creative self. And that's why I think I've become in this direction that I've become. You know what's what's fascinating for me? I mean, you're very privileged. Um, at, at the age of 13 years old, you kind of discovered your purpose and you discovered what you're all about. I find that so many of us, sometimes me included, you think that you found it, the purpose, and then you're like, nah, this is not it. Nah, this is not it. What in your view is the reason for that? Why we struggle so hard to find our purpose and, and why we are here and what needs to get done? I think firstly, we overthink it. There are a number of sort of micro purposes. Your purpose on the show today is to enlighten your audience mm. and to engage your purpose in this very moment. So you have all these different dimensions of purpose. I think when it comes to this sort of ultimate spiritual God, why am I on earth? Again, we over-question it. At any given moment, how do you apply yourself to add value to this world? And while you're doing that, you're going to be torn and ripped apart. You're going to be, you're going to experience things that stress and, and expand you. And wherever you are stressed and expanded the most is probably where your deeper purpose is. Because I believe God in the universe allows us to go through extraordinary expansion and stress so that we can learn and rebuild muscle tissue and spiritual tissue to be able to go back stronger and apply ourselves in those same areas. So, for example, I come from a really crazy family. So on this farm, really, my grandparents, <laughs> so my grandparents on that farm had eight kids. Three of them fundamentally defined a big part of why I'm interested in neuroscience. So I've got three uncles. Uh, one that's a mega church pastor. You know these pastors? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> and they do that whole thing, yeah. right? So I've got one of those. And then I've got an uncle that spent a lot of his time in prison. And then I've got a, which is my favorite, I've got an uncle that's a federal judge. And my uncle that's a federal judge is extremely serious. So you can imagine you got a pastor, an uncle that was in jail, and then a federal judge very close to each other, who grew up the same. Now, I'm going to give you the three names, and you tell me who is who. Okay, yeah. Pastor, Jailbird, Judge. So, James, Joe, Billy Jack. Billy Jack is Jailbird. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I became, and James became the pastor. James, yeah, the James book of James. Like the, yeah, because of the book of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I became interested then how their names influenced them. And then I started, when I started studying psychology and then I got into neuroscience, and I realized that these things really impact us on an unconscious level. And then I'd be like, whoa, I'm Webster, writer, dictionary. Then I became fascinated. I was like, whoa. Oh, wow. So, you start really understanding purpose. Everything around you is influencing you without you realizing it. And it's important to be aware of all these things around you that's influencing you. And then you can start to demystify this thing of purpose. I mean, one of my favorite studies is, you remember Hurricane Katrina? Do you know that the people who gave the most to charity in Hurricane Relief Funds are people whose names started with K for Katrina? What, what is that parallel what? about? We are obsessed and attracted to things and people who look, sound, and relate and are similar to us. Why? Because of the instinct of survival. We are so fundamentally drawn into that pressing impulse and instinct of survival, 
that anything that's similar to us, mm. we're drawn to. But if I may just add to that, but the, the, the negative part of it is this whole thing about diversity inclusion. So I was speaking recently on a panel. I was like, people have no idea. Sameness trumps diversity. Mm. And if you want diversity, you actually have to sacrifice and be courageous. How many people would you allow inside of you? Wow, Timothy, are we really going okay, there? We're going there. But My you, husband. Exactly. So you, you're not interested in diversity? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, 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 yo. We don't allow many doctors around us. We don't allow many people in our homes even. We're very selective. Diversity exposes us to extraordinary risk. So we are attracted to sameness. We're attracted to things that are familiar. And the moment you start opening up to diversity, it can have extraordinary rewards, but it can have extraordinary downsides. Absolutely. So the reason why diversity, particularly in a country like South Africa, is a problem to most people on the surface is because when I, let me, let me step back a bit. Let me give a simple story. Mm. I think I split with my ex because she was more attracted to sameness than diversity. So my ex, I'll just put it out there. So she, her uncle was a king in Swaziland and her grandfather was Nelson Mandela. Now, imagine having a partner who comes from these extreme backgrounds. Now, one day we were at a a wedding, and I kept asking her to translate what was happening. And she was looking at me like, what was I thinking about choosing you? I just wanted to enjoy (laughs) myself. Why on earth am I having to sit here and translate? If I was with someone who could speak my language, I could just enjoy myself. So not only did she have the frustration... But she was expending glucose and energy. And over time, because she's chosen diversity, it wears her brain down. Now, it's important to understand what would she have gotten on that day from a brain chemical perspective? On that day, if she had chosen someone who was in her clan or similar to her, she would have gotten the benefit of additional cognitive load that she could have used on a number of things. But instead, she was investing it on me. So sameness would have provided her an opportunity. Now, there are times when diversity provides extraordinary privilege and opportunities, but there are times when there's a downside and exposure to risk and so forth. So I was speaking on this panel, which is a global panel, a a global conference sponsored by Lloyd's of London, Mm -hmm. and they literally have it around the world over a a few-week period. And I I challenged everybody. To stop acting like diversity is easy. Mm. Stop speaking of it in this sort of utopia because it's damn hard. Mm. It's, it's, It's so hard, in fact, that especially when the economy is tough, consumer confidence is down, whenever the economy and the world is complex, we retreat to sameness. Because why do I want to expose my kids? Think about your, you have kids, right? You know, you have family members who have kids, right? Why would they open up themselves to something that they're not sure about? It ruined the chance of their children thriving. Why would they do that? I don't have kids, but when I look at my sister, and I, my sister, for example, has two children, why would she take a risk into something that's not certain to ruin the chance of her kids surviving? If you want to explore diversity... You need to put together a bold, clear, structured vision for why this makes sense. 
And you need to have empirical evidence almost on why we're going to go in this direction if you want to compel people to go with you. Just to say, oh, it's nice to have black and white together is pathetic. And I'm actually sick of it. I'm sick of people acting like and not studying the science of this stuff. Because when you do, you set people up for failure. You make people, you point fingers, you make people go, this person is racist, this person is bad. No, you've just been lazy about how you've gone about it. And because you've been lazy, you've now set people up for failure. And that's what's mm-hmm. happening all over the world, not just South Africa, uh, Brazil. Oh, everywhere. yeah. Yeah. You know, you know you, you're touching on, on something that's so true. And it's something that always percolates in my mind. One of my best friends is a black female that has grown up in very unprivileged um, life. And she's one of the smartest people I, I know. And she has uplifted me as a, as a human being. She believed in me before I believed in myself. Our cultures are completely different. I've got an Afrikaans background. We both, through our friendship, learned all about this whole thing of stereotypes and being biased and and really not giving each other a chance and to understand each other's cultures better and to see that we're all, all pink on the inside and mm. we all have emotions. And you know of the situation where I landed into black Twitter and that that whole lovely scenario. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were the first person I called, what do I do now? But anyway, and some horrifying things were said. And I was like, you know, at the, I as a person believe that we all can get along together. And I, I, I believe that we can do that. But there's so many people that doesn't want to move away from the past. But they have rights to to that past because it was a horrible one. Mm. So it's a very conflicting situation. I just wish there was a way to get people to get along better because the world would be a better place because of it. But I think that's maybe just fairyland. Yeah, let let me share a story with you. I was in in Pumalanga, a very Afrikaans sort of economically driven place. And I arrived there to speak in an accountant's conference. So imagine you've got probably 200 Afrikaans people, mostly men, who are accountants and auditors. You don't get more conservative than that. Listen, so, so my host, week. <laughs> so the host, the host was outside worried whether or not I was going to be able to connect with them. And I said, the last thing you have to worry about is this moment. Sure. And he's like, why? I said, just watch. So we walk in the event and people, it was cold. It was the end of the day. Somehow they didn't get the heat working. So they were frustrated. You know, there's this mm-hmm. sense of like, who's running this place? Oh. What kind of mess is this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then who is this colored guy coming to speak to? <laughs> so, so I get in and because I understand the culture and the strength and the, the dynamics around being in the bottom of the world, isolated with very few allies. Mm. And because I understand the plights of that culture, Zulu, Kosa, um, French, African, I study ecology, I study cultural order as a part of my understanding of people. So I see on my left side, there are two black people sitting together. And in the back, the only other black people, two of them sitting together. Right? After doing an introduction, I have some fun with this. (laughs) And I speak about the science of sameness. And why they've chosen to group together for efficiency purposes. I'm like, imagine it's cold in here. It's frustrating. It's a long day. Imagine you having to translate something. Wouldn't it be easier to speak it for these guys in Zulu or for these guys in Afrikaans? Wouldn't it be so much easier? And then I set them up 
in this conversation to realize that everything that they've been taught that's bad is actually the brain trying to preserve itself. And I flip the entire conversation on its head. So what's happening with you, for example, with Black Twitter, Black Twitter immediately saw you as more of a symbol. It wasn't about you. Mm. It was about a symbolic gesture that happened that kind of violated their pain. It's like we've got pain points that create patterns for why we connect. So there's no logic in that. The logic is tossed out the room in favor of connecting over pain patterns. And these pain patterns help people bond. I need to share this because I think this is going to help you really fully break through when it comes to that experience you had. A Palestinian professor decided that I don't think we understand Jewish pain enough. I want to take my MBA students to the Holocaust Museum. He decided I'm going to go to the Holocaust Museum and study and really try to understand so we can have a healthy conversation. He comes back. The Palestinians had bombed his classroom. He gets home and they kill him and his whole family. (gasps) Why? Not the Jewish people. His own people. Because there's a thing called sacred pain. And sacred pain is when people have a past with similar patterns of pain. What they do is that they center around that and allow that become sort of the tribal call that becomes almost like its own religion. And people have to be more loyal to that than logic if you want to stay a member of this tribe. If you want to stay a member of this tribe, you can't entertain logic in this sound reasoning that Carmen is coming with because you're not part of the tribe. So the only way we're going to get people to come together and, and overcome sameness and tribalism is you got to understand each other's pain. And how do you understand each other's pain? You've got to experience part of it. And if you don't experience part of it and people don't see you experiencing part of it. So my final point on this is this. When I first came, a mentor of mine named Isaac Shongwei and Renus LaRue, the two of them have been very instrumental in my life here. They said, you need to go and experience cultures. It's not enough to talk about it. So one of the things I went through was a ceremony in Swaziland where I joined a regiment. And by joining this regiment, I was literally thrown into this crawl. No other American had done it in that particular crawl. I walked in with my traditional Western tie on. I think I had on Nike and some, you know, whatever. I went inside of a hut. They gave me these clothes with the skirt and the whole thing, you know, that with the beads. Yes. And I came out. I came out and they lifted, they lifted my skirt and they saw that I had underwear on and they jerked them off. <laughs> now, you in the underwear. <laughs> wait, I know. What's up with me in underwear? I went through a ceremony and they laughed at me. Everything I knew about being an American was thrown out the window. Sure. They laughed at me, and I told them, I'm, I'm going to learn slowly but surely. I humbled myself, and then they gave me my name. So I've got a name. And they give you a necklace that you can't buy. They physically don't retail it anywhere. It's a necklace that is given to you once you've been initiated into this culture. Wow. And when I first met Oprah, I was wearing this ne- necklace. And Oprah was like, where did you get it? I love it. How would I get one? I was like, you can't, Oprah, sorry. To say no to Oprah? Like, really? (laughs) But my name they gave me is Gagnani Gagnani, which means slowly but surely, little by little. And they gave me that name because Gagnani Gagnani, they saw that I was trying little by little. I wasn't there yet. That has endeared me to people in that space. I'm no longer just an American. When I say Gagnani Gagnani, in my story, 
I become part of the pain pattern. So if you want to overcome sameness and get into diversity, those are the type of extremes that we have to go through. I think it's so beautiful, the story that you've just told us. It's almost like it's gone full circle. Webster, realizing, you know, there's the, there's the philosophy behind words and, and then, you know, your, your venture and your journey in South Africa and becoming part of a culture. That was probably culture shock for you when you arrived here. Mm. Um, for me, it's so beautiful. I mean, I, I just want to tell you a, a very interesting story. My mom, I was considered a miracle baby. My mom was sterilized after her first husband passed away from leukemia. She met my dad after they were married for two years, decided they wanted me. Couldn't have me, so there was this experiment happening from the United States, and they said that they would do it for free for my parents, but it's an experiment. It might not work. So they did the the reverse of her sterilization. They said three months she will fall pregnant. She fell pregnant within a month. Very hard pregnancy. She was nine months on her back. But one thing happened was she was always lying on her back with the radio was on and Carmen Opera used to play. And she had a cup of tea on her tummy. I used to kick the, the, the cup of tea off her stomach. So that is when my mom decided that they're not going to call me Zane, which was supposed to be my name. And they decided, my siblings, everybody, we have to call her Carmen. Because I hated my name when I was a child. I was like, what is this name? It's like, nobody can say it properly. And it just like, it just sounds so stupid. And I hated my name. And, um, and it's living that full prophecy of, of your name, mine meaning song. I'm definitely not a singer, but I, I know that my voice needs to be heard. That's something that I believe is, is, is my purpose. But the, the interesting thing is I went to this conference. And this um, young um, female stood up on the stage and she said, if you speak to me, you call me by my full name. You don't call me a name that's comfortable for you to pronounce. Mm. My full name has been given to me by my culture. It has been given to me so that people can speak my prophecy every time when they say my mm. name. And I want my prophecy to fulfill itself and to love. So you will call me by my full name. Wow. And I was like, wow. That's deep, right? I need to stop calling people all these fun, cute, cute names. Well, unless you get permission. Unless you get permission. Right? Yeah. yeah. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But that was just for me a big aha moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because names in the Calabrian philosophy, I think I mentioned that in the book, that some cultures believe once you start going through stuff, they will change your name. Because they feel like your name houses or holds patterns, exactly. They, they will literally change yeah. the name. And I think, you know, if you think about your name and what it means, it holds history in it. It's mm -hmm. powerful. I mean, it's like it becomes the base of your identity. It becomes like the foundation from which you do everything, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it, it will become a big part of your family legacy. Like mm. your, you know, for, for many, many generations, people will hear about you and they'll be like, Carmen was part of the, an experiment. <laughs> yeah. Don't go there, Tim. Like, <laughs> you tried to go deep and then you just burst out laughing. I mean, you're, you've just shattered my confidence. Yeah. Like I'm just sitting there. I've just opened up myself. I'm just happy you made it. <laughs> I made it. I'm here. Before we start closing off the show, there's one thing I really want to talk to you about is in your book, Personal Brand Intelligence. Guys, if you haven't 
taken the time to buy this book, go to exclusive books. Um, where else can they get the book? I don't know. You probably have to order it. There's the crazy. We just gone to another print run. Selling out left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've gone to another print run, and we're actually doing a big campaign. So go to my website and then just click on it. And you can you get the ebook if if you can't find the print copy, but. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. It's all about personal brand intelligence. And I, and obviously we, we've spoken a lot about culture, the evolution of ourselves and our cultures and also talking about, you know, neuroscience and, and, and some of the behavior behind it, but we haven't had time to go really deep into it. But what I want to just ask you, what are the lessons that you can tell our audience? Because we have a lot of business professionals that are aiming to become speakers and they want to propel their careers and they want to build their own personal brands. And we're living in the era where people are doing that. What are the key elements that people need to consider when doing and, and wanting to go on that adventure? You know, last week in New York, I got a chance to sit down with a South African named Matt Brown. You know Matt? Oh, I love Matt. Yeah. yeah. Lovely guy. It was interesting how we connected. He has a friend named Cat Wolf. I don't know if you know Cat. Cat also has a podcast about property. So Cat connected us on LinkedIn. So I log on one morning and I look on LinkedIn and I see that Matt is also in New York. So I reach out to him. Turns out that one of my former mentees who was in New York was at a place where Matt was also going to be. We connect. And one of the things that we, he and I talked about was the, the need to take risk. Mm-hmm. And the need to position yourself to take risk. I feel like most people in this social media era are so desperate to try to communicate something, so desperate to try to project something, that they don't realize that you've got to be positioned for the next you. You've got to be positioned for the evolution of you. Because sometimes we can get so bogged down in what we're trying to project and the lie that we're trying to communicate that we end up we end up being trapped. So if Matt was so financially trapped, he wasn't able to come to New York to explore new opportunities, he'd be he would struggle to grow his brand. Mm. So and one of the biggest lessons, and I think is for me has been important, is that are you free enough to move to the next chapter of your life? Wow. And yeah. are you open like when I came to South Africa, it made no sense. I was living in New York, minding my own business, enjoying my life. It made no sense. I was happy. I was thriving, doing my, living my life. And if I did, if I did not have the ability to have the savings, to have the, if I wasn't, if I wasn't positioned to be able to make that leap, I wouldn't have transformed my life the way I have. Mm. So I would ask everyone to go and look at what's unnecessary. What can you let go of? What can you release yourself from that really doesn't matter? It's not a big part of your identity. It's not a big part of your purpose. It's not a big part of who you are. Get rid of it. Sell it. Give it away. You know, bless somebody else with it or whatever to position yourself for the new you. Um, One of my friends is going through um, a huge transition in her life. And I said, you need to put a date to it, like, like a wedding date. Like mm. this is a date of launching the new me and, and mm. really live that out and let it play out and manifest itself in this launch that you, that it, you know, that it's just a switch that goes off in your mind. And I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's a journey. It's, it's not an easy thing. I have started building my brand over many, many years and I'm starting to, to get the progress, but I still find it very hard. I find it very challenging, a lot of learnings, and it's not a, it's not a silver bullet. 
Okay, let's go through this real quick. What do you find hard? I'm going to give you a free, some free advisory. For, and whoever is listening, if you're still hanging out with us. <laughs> What's, uh, so, sorry, can you repeat the question? What's, what are you finding hard about building your brand? I find it hard because I've got dyslexia. I'm very self-aware. I'm Afrikaans. I come with an accent. I've got a very high energy. And to find that that way of expressing myself as me, but at the same time to appeal to other people that needs to receive the message that I want to, to you know, uh, bring across. And I want to empower and inspire people. But that's the part that I feel is very hard for me. Okay, so let's go through this. When you think about all the famous people, famous entrepreneurs who have dyslexia, can you list them? I know Einstein had it. Yeah, Richard Branson. Richard Branson. My mentor, Isaac Chongwei, who's a billionaire. What I've learned about all these people is that they have a strength because of it. So everything you've experienced that seems challenging or negative produces a strength. Mm. So the strength that most people have because of dyslexia is an extraordinary sort of memory and a visual sort of capacity, right? So how is your memory and visual capacity helping you produce this podcast? What value does that bring? If you start thinking about applying that strength to every single activity, and then you go, okay, what does what strength do I have being Afrikaans? Okay, I've got this discipline, timely. So if I go, if I collaborate with people who don't have these strengths that I have, mm-hmm. and then we can fulfill a void in the market. Like, for, for example, as an American... I offer zero BE codes. I offer zero. Like I'm worse than Afrikaans people. <laughs> worse. I'm at the bottom, bottom, bottom. So then I start going, okay, if I'm at the bottom of the food chain, I can offer people zero points, none of that stuff. <laughs> then what can I do? How do I partner and collaborate so that people who can bring the points, women, black people, how do I bring value to a value chain to be able to add strength and innovation? Yes. So then I start looking for those opportunities and I go, where does my voice, where's my voice needed? And then I put together this kind of an ecosystem. Like I take a paper and I start plotting dots. Mm-hmm. And then I look at what is the story that's coming from these strengths? So in your case, what is the story that's coming from having dyslexia, being an Afrikaans woman who struggles to express themselves? So again, I need somebody who can express themselves more clearly. I need all these, put them together and then start putting messaging points underneath it. And then I start narrowing it down to go, what is the strongest messaging points of this? Mm-hmm. And where are these messaging points needed the most? Wow. And then when you start aligning those two dynamics, you go, okay, that's where the money can be made because that's where the demand is. And you know what? When you isolate yourself, Go to a farm, go to nature, go to your garden and just sit with this ecosystem paper and let the universe start really speaking to you about where you really need to be. Because we need to quieten the noise and trust the instincts, Mm. trust what's coming up on the inside of you. Mm. Because at the end of the day, all the external noise can confuse you from where the real answers are on that piece of paper. Yeah, and, and and I totally agree with that. I mean, that's the one thing is like this hustle thing. I feel that... I really need to a rebirth. There's, I can feel something big, but I need to find that core. Yeah, and you don't have to go to India, eat, pray, love. You don't have to do all that. I would you, love to. You though. can literally go to your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> would be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Listen, I've had a blast. I wish you could be here the whole day. We could have so many episodes. We could, could like create like a series, and then we can create a drama series. <laughs> anyway. <That would> be <laughs> fun. In keeping with tradition, we are going to play our 60-second game. You have 10 questions. You need to try and answer them Ooh. as quickly okay. as possible. Do I win a million? A million dollars? Listen, no million dollars. 
I'll do a hula hoop for you. I'll do like right, a little, little cool. dance for you. Okay. On your marks, get set, go. Who are one of the most interesting people you met? You. Oh, wow. How would you sell hot cocoa in Florida? Easy. I'd put people, I'd bring a fridge and I'd ask people to come in and then I'd take a photo and take a selfie in this fridge. <laughs> if you could choose one song to play every time you walked into a room for the rest of your life, what would it be? John uh, uh, Legend's Ordinary People. What do you think about when you're on your bus, on your scooter? I think not much because you have to be extremely focused and proactive as a driver. Agreed. A penguin walks through that door right now wearing a sombrero. What does he say and why is he here? <laughs> I think he just starts dancing. <laughs> Estimate how many windows are in New York? Windows. I would say based on this, like six, seven million people times 10, probably 80 million. Pick two celebrities to be your parents. Celebrity, I would love to have Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. Oh, well done. You got, got seven out of 10, but when I'm not done yet, I'm going to ask you the rest of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> if you could sing one song on X Factor, what would it be? Ooh, if I could sing a song, it would be LL Cool J's I Need Love. Oh. I need love. I need love. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make a tuna sandwich? Uh, I take tuna and I don't like mayo. Really? Yeah, I don't like mayo. So I would put just a little bit to give it some, a little bit of olive oil and some um, lettuce. Okay, last question. What's something that you've never been able to do well? Um, tell the difference between where and where. <laughs> Yeah. My editors drive me crazy. Yo. My editor's like, dude. I'm like, but that's why you're an editor. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, when I get to write my book, I'm going to have to have a whole team. I'm going to have to have somebody to check my tenses. I'm going to have to do copy and somebody to edit. There's you know be... what you can do? You can actually record it on your phone and send it to India, and then they'll send back a draft, and then you can send it to an editor. You don't have to do much anymore. That is the most awesome idea I've ever heard. Yeah. Listen, we're going to take this off air. You have been incredible. We You've are going been to, incredible. We are going to get this out as wide as possible. Thank you so much, guys. And um, subscribe on via iTunes and Spotify or CastBox or wherever you would like to listen to your podcast. We're everywhere. Join us next time. And don't forget to keep us posted on anything interesting that's happening out there that you would like to share with us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another Solid Gold podcast. For show notes and more episodes, visit solidgoldstudios.co.za slash Carmen Murray.